The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. There are two reasons why I love the passage that we're going to be in this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It is Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, and we'll go through verse 8. Two particular reasons that this is extremely personal for me. One is that for a short time, I lived in Italy, and during my time there, I spent the very tail end of my time there in Rome. And while I was in Rome, I was living on top of the Salvation Army building. They had like a little lean-to house on top of their building, and I kind of lived in it and then helped them out, so they let me stay there for free. But I had no legal way to make income in the country, so what I would do is I would go to the Roman Forum, and I would wait until I heard some Americans or I heard some British folks or South South Africans or some Australians asking themselves, what is this stuff? Because everything's written in Italian. And they would say to themselves something like, I wish somebody could tell us what all of this stuff is. So that's when I would pop up and say, well, let me tell you what these things are. And I would walk around and I would point to them and say, well, that's the Temple of Vesta. That's the Temple of this. That's these sorts of things. Oh, I'm sorry. Children are dismissed. I'm getting the signal from the back that I'm about to make a huge mistake. All right. Thank you very much, Rebecca. Well done. Thank you, kiddos. Have a great time down in your class. So I would go around and I would tell people, this is the Temple of Vesta. It was built in this year or whatever. And I learned all these things. So I had fun telling people about them. I love that sort of thing. And I would always end my tour in the same place. I would always go to the Mamertine Prison, which is right there in the middle of the forum. But most people walk right past it, having no idea what it is, because it's not well publicized. The Mamertine Prison is where they believe that Paul had been held as a prisoner. It's where high-profile criminals were held just before they were tried. They believe that this is where the book of 2 Timothy was written. And so I would go there, and the building is essentially just a large large round building and you walk in and the first floor there's nothing that's where the roman guards would stay and there's a big hole a circular hole in the middle of the floor and that's where they used to take the prisoners and drop them down about 12 feet to the second floor where second uh, level down where they would just sit and that's where they would stay until somebody would either lower a rope and bring them up or somebody would lower a rope and go down and tie it to them and drag them out if they had died or passed out now there's a staircase that they have built for tourists to go down there. So I would take people down there and I would open the Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, not knowing anything about their spiritual lives. And I would read this passage and I would share what happened with Paul. And I would explain to them the gospel for which Christ came to preach and for which Paul died. And so that's one reason this is a very personal text to me. Another reason this is a very personal text to me is because about nine years ago, I preached my very first Sunday morning sermon, and it was from this text. I don't encourage you to look that up. It's pretty horrendous. I checked it out this week. It's really bad. But this is something that has often resonated with me. It's something that I desire to focus on and meditate upon because it is so rich and valuable and so contrary to my nature. 
So I hope that today as we come to this word, I will be able by the grace of God to convince you by the Holy Spirit that this is something you need to listen to as well. And I need to hear it again every day. So if you're there, please look at your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 6. It says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we pray that this morning as we come to you, you would give us freshness in our eyes that we might see this text anew, that we would be filled with joy as we come before it, that we would have a new passion for the gospel, that we would see your son Jesus Christ and we would desire him and enjoy him and desire to be more like him. God, today I pray that as we see the example of Paul, you would help us by comparison to see how we are not there yet. Please help us, Lord, to be changed, to be more like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Anytime you see a sentence begin with the word for, you should ask yourself, what in the world is this doing here? For, this word is not the way that you come into a conversation. So I walk up to you and say, for I was thinking, no, that doesn't work. You have to know why it is here by taking a wider lens and see why Paul is using that word. Paul has just finished charging Timothy in no uncertain terms that he is called to preach the gospel. This command was what Jake was preaching about last week is the epicenter of the book of 2 Timothy. It is the powerhouse command that Paul was giving to him. And after insisting that Timothy faithfully preach the word, Paul includes, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul is going to ground all of that, all of those commands, with a gut-wrenchingly personal plea to Timothy. That pinnacle command in the book is rooted in this reason. Verse 5, 4, or because I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. These famous last words of a man condemned to death. And I want you to take careful consideration to read these words appropriately. So imagine for a moment you're Timothy. And you have received this letter from your father figure. You have received this letter from your best friend, from the man who has had more influence in your life than anyone else ever could. And you received this letter from him, excited to read what it has to say. And you open it. And at, at this point, you've been reading and reading and reading all of these different ways that Paul has encouraged you and exhorted you to fan the flame of zeal for Christ. And now, as he begins to bring the book to a close, as he finishes out this letter, he uses carefully crafted and thoughtfully loving language to tell you, his spiritual son, I'm about to die. I am going to be executed. 
I have to imagine that these words would have been met with weeping by Timothy. We read through them too quickly, perhaps. I believe Timothy might have even had to put the letter down before he continued reading, as this hit so hard for him. How would you respond if this is a letter that you received from your father figure telling you that he was about to be executed? This is absolutely the emotional center of the book. Timothy, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you to carry on the ministry because I'm not going to much longer. I'm telling you to take the torch because I am no longer able to carry it. Paul is charging Timothy to carry on the gospel to the next generation. And by preserving this scripture for us, the Holy Spirit is telling us today through his word that very same thing. Carry the torch of the gospel forward in our day. So let's give glory where glory is due. It's theoretically possible to read these three verses and to walk away thinking that this scripture just wants us to be more like Paul. But that's not what Paul wanted for Timothy, and that's not what the Holy Spirit wants to apply to us either. Even this farewell from death row is designed to point us to Jesus and to center us upon the gospel. So here's the way we're going to ingest these words this morning. Two simple points. Point number one, to live is Christ. Point number two, to die is gain. Point number one, to live is Christ. In verse 7, Paul summarizes his entire Christian life with the simple phrase, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. My goal, by the end of point number 1, is that we will have a full understanding of what it means when he says that he has done these things so that we can honor Christ in a similar way. Paul begins this section by saying that he is being poured out like a drink offering. The imagery here is very important. In the Old Testament, sometimes they were told to give physical sacrifices of animals. And often, at the end of that process, what they were called to do was to take a drink offering and they were to pour it over the offering of the animal. That's called a libation. And it is the very last part of the offering. So imagine that. The priest, the Levite, takes the animal, they slit its throat, they lay it on the stones, and they have it all tied up, and then they light it on fire until it burns and it is being consumed. When it nears completion of being consumed, that is when they would take that wine and they would pour it onto the hot coals and the remains, and it would begin to put everything out and would make this delicious smelling aroma and this steam go up into the air as those rocks boiled away what was left of the libation. And so it was the picture that Paul was giving. The offering is nearly complete. This is my final act. I want you to pay close attention to the tense here. He says, I am already being poured out. John MacArthur explains this really well in his commentary when he says, he saw his life, not his death, as his ultimate act of sacrifice to the Lord. He was a living sacrifice, not a dead one. His entire life had been laid upon the altar, but by using this imagery of the drink offering, he was making it clear that he had now entered this very final stage of his life. Notice how Paul uses this exact same metaphor back in Philippians chapter 2 verse 17. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, 
I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul has been willing to spend and be spent for the sake of the gospel. His life has been poured out for Christ. And once again, he describes those years of faithful obedience in Christ in this way. He says, I have, past tense, fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. These three statements are intended to be parallel truths with an identical meaning. You shouldn't understand fighting and running as different than keeping the faith. They are other ways to say, I have kept the faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 through 12, Paul exhorts Timothy to do this exact same thing. He says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things, speaking of all the evil that he had mentioned before, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And then he explains and summarizes all of those things with the phrase, fight the good fight of the faith. That's what it looks like to fight the good fight. So the question here is, faith in what? What faith has Paul kept? When the word faith is used with the definite article the in the New Testament, which it is used that way 36 times, it shows up to speak about the whole of Christian teaching. Every single time this is used as a synonym for the gospel or Christian beliefs. For example, Jude wrote a short letter to warn the church about false teachers, and he says in verse 3, it is necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what is the faith? The faith here is not speaking about your belief. It is speaking about the criterion, the information that is included in the beliefs we are called to have. In other words, The faith is the gospel. It is the good news that God provided a way of redemption for sinners like you and me. Merry Christmas. Jesus came to earth. He was born as our substitute. He was away in a manger so that he might be lifted up on a cross. God demands perfection. All of us have failed to be perfect. But the good news of Christmas is that God provides what God demands. So here we see that Jesus died. He died to save sinners. He took on flesh to conquer death's sting, as we just sang. He shattered the darkness and he lifted our shame. And that is what happened at the cross. But he didn't remain in the grave. He was raised and he continues to live to be our savior. And that is what Paul has built his entire life around. He experienced suffering in many ways. We see his suffering from stonings and shackles and shipwrecks. Yet Paul pressed on. But why did he do that? Why not just stop? Why not just stay somewhere? Why not just give up? What motivated him to lay down his life in this way? What motivated him to have a daily investment of himself in the ministry of the gospel? Let's allow Paul to explain this to us using his own words. In Galatians 2.20 he says, I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That is why he does the things that he does. This life is no longer about him. And the Christian 
must recognize our life is not about us. It is not our own. Our priorities, our passions, our pursuits, all of those things should transition upon becoming a Christian to now matching those of Christ himself. This mirrors exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you hold the perspective that your life belongs to you, then you're going to waste it in pursuing whatever vain, empty thing appeals to you in the moment. But if you realize that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price, then you will love and enjoy the things of God more than you love and enjoy the things of the world. Paul's commitment to the gospel resulted in his life being very difficult. It was extremely miserable at times. His commitment to the gospel resulted in hunger, in imprisonments, and all sorts of physical violence against him. And he addresses this very thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. As I read verses 8 through 11 here, I want you to think and listen carefully about the underlying reason that Paul was pleased to suffer for the gospel. Listen as I read aloud. We are afflicted in every way. Have you ever been afflicted? It is uncomfortable, but not crushed. We have been perplexed, but not driven to despair. We have been persecuted, but not forsaken. Forsaken by whom? Forsaken by all kinds of people, yes, but not by Christ. We have been struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Did you catch it? Do you see the reason that Paul is okay with losing everything? It is because... There are things that this world can't take from him. There are things that this world has tried to destroy, but they can't succeed. They could afflict and persecute and strike down, but you can't take Christ away. And secondly, Paul rejoiced in that suffering because he knew that it was through his own personal distress that Jesus would be manifested. What does that mean? It means that it is in this way, by Paul's suffering, that the world would see the brightness of the glory of Christ. Jesus shines bright when Christians suffer for the sake of the Lord. Earlier this month, a pastor named Wang Yi and his wife, Jing Rong, over in China, and more than a hundred of the people who attend their church, which is called Early Rain Covenant Church, were all arrested in the city of Chengdu in by the Chinese authorities there. The members of the congregation were all charged with inciting, uh, inciting subversion to state power. They are criminals of the state. Knowing that this was a possibility, knowing that it was even maybe a likelihood that he would be arrested and that he would be sentenced to prison, the pastor had beforehand written a letter that was to be published if he was detained for more than 48 hours. It's entitled, A Declaration of of faithful disobedience. I highly encourage you to read the entire document. I'm just going to kind of pick a few snippets here for us today for our encouragement as I present to you because I want you to see the picture of what happens when somebody stands for Christ against the world. 
And I want you to see that in the midst of this, he is not only standing against the world, he is standing for the world so that they might know Christ. So listen carefully as we see the manner in which Christ can shine brightly in the midst of persecution. He says, quote, as a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short and God fervently commands the church to lead and call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager and willing to forgive all who turn from their sins. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling that I have received. Those who lock me up will one day be locked up by angels. Those who interrogate me will finally be questioned and judged by Christ. When I think of this, the Lord fills me with a natural compassion and grief toward those who are attempting to and actively imprisoning me. Pray that the Lord would use me, that he would grant me patience and wisdom, that I might take the gospel to them. Separate me from my wife and children, ruin my reputation, destroy my life and my family. The authorities are capable of doing all of these things. However, no one in this world can force me to renounce my faith. No one can make me change my life and no one can raise me from the dead. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the eternal living God. He died for sinners and rose to life for us. He is my king and the king of the whole earth yesterday, today, and forever. I am his servant and I am imprisoned because of this. I will resist in meekness those who resist God and I will joyfully violate all laws that violate God's laws. There's much more to that. I encourage you to read it on your own. I'll simply say that these 100 people have disappeared into the Chinese prison system. Some of them have been released now and are currently under house arrest, but the majority of them have disappeared and might not ever be seen again. That is what fighting the good fight and running running the good race looks like. However, it doesn't start like that. It starts with simple, little, daily decisions to say yes to Jesus and no to sin every single time. Your cross looks different than his. But we are all called to carry our cross daily. Think of a soldier. A soldier fights battles only on rare occasions, but their life is filled with daily discipline discipline and preparation for those fights when they arrive. I recently have begun to run again. Uh, You've probably heard of the tortoise and the hare. This is more like the walrus and the hare. Uh, And after not running for more than a decade, it's really difficult to start. It's very challenging. And the first day was like torture, like shin splints and cramps and every muscle was like on fire. But as I've done it more and more regularly, it's become more natural. And the Christian life is like that. 
We are called to grow in our daily obedience to Christ. The Christian life is a marathon, not a bunch of little random sprints spread out throughout our lives. Every moment is an opportunity to give God glory or not. And Christ is worthy. He is worthy of your daily worship. Christ was worthy of all of our worship before he was ever born in Bethlehem. He was worthy of our worship because he is God. And he is worthy to be worshipped how much more so now that he has made himself low to redeem us. He is the one who ran the perfect race. He is the one who fought the fight for us that we could never fight. He conquered death and the devil at the cross. And he has given us the gift of faith that we are now called to keep. Christ is worthy of your life. So what Paul is commending Timothy to do here is just live for Jesus. Not just to die for him, but to live daily for him. Let me speak specifically now to those who are Christians. There may be those who don't know Christ here. Right now I'm speaking specifically to you who are in Christ. Allow me to give you two scenarios here before we jump to point number two. Scenario one. You live out the rest of your life as a Christian, doing the major Christian things that you know you're supposed to do. Things like going to church and faithfully giving and maybe even being part of a community group. But you never actually do anything that will sacrifice your comfort. You never lose sleep over prayer for those that you know are suffering in your church. You never in any way do anything that will cause you to lose your comfort zone. You always choose financial comfort rather than generosity. You choose to be liked by the world rather than faithfully proclaiming the gospel. You choose to indulge in socially acceptable sins, creating lines of demarcation that, of course, you wouldn't cross, but your standards are much different and informed by your desires and your concern for your reputation than they are by the word of God. You choose ease instead of service to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You choose relaxation over hospitality. You choose to collect a house full of possessions that just pile up and up and up. And you are more interested in how people show you love than how you love other people. You often make plans to be more committed to Christ, to become more committed to the church, to be more obedient to Jesus. And you sometimes set milestones and say, I'm going to do this once I get that promotion, or I'm going to get it once I get that raise. I'm going to do this as soon as I graduate or as soon as I retire. You set these artificial barriers or boundaries and say, when I get there, then I will do it. But once you arrive, your life is so comfortable that you're not motivated to lift a finger to change for the kingdom of God. Your life is comfortable. It is relaxed. You end the day, your days filled with earthly goods, with a lot of friends. You rarely encounter anything that could ever be considered persecution because people don't even know who you serve. That's scenario number one. Scenario number two. From this day forward, you walk each day in the spirit. You desire that God removes even the most hidden sin from your life. You lose non Christian friends, because you're not interested in laughing at the things that they do. You're not interested in going to the places that they want to go. You don't enjoy the things that they enjoy. You're often tired because your days have been spent pouring out your life for the sake of the brethren. You find yourself saying no end, seeing no end to the endless array of opportunities 
for entertainment. You, you just keep saying no to these things like Netflix and YouTube and all the things that you could just fill your evenings and days with. It's me time. You say no to those things in order to be more committed to studying the word. And before making an unnecessary purchase, you first consider, is there anyone in the church or the mission field who is in need? Instead of surrounding yourself with people who are just like you and who are likable to you, you have an eye for those who are down and who are discouraged and who are difficult to love. You reject the idea that stuff makes you happy. You reject the notion that he who dies with the most toys wins. You reject the idea that the world revolves around you. You embrace Christ and you love him. And therefore you love his church. And therefore you love your spouse sacrificially. And therefore you love your children without idolizing them. And therefore you love your neighbor as yourself. And so you find at the end of your life that you don't have much in terms of earthly stuff. But you've spent your life as a Christian being a living sacrifice for Jesus. Now I want to give a quick warning. If you find your life looks more like scenario one you need to examine yourself and see if you are in Christ. Because there are many who have fooled themselves into believing they are Christians, and the Bible says you must examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. If any part of that describes you, repent. The Lord is quick to forgive and run to the cross and live for him. And I want you to see that scenario one is exactly what the entire book of 2 Timothy has warned us not to be. Ultimately, it comes down to the question that we've heard from 2 Timothy to chapter 1 through 4 before. Do you want to be somebody who is of use for the kingdom of God? He is saying here, Timothy, I want you to be like this. I want you to spend and be spent for the gospel. I want you to, even if you come to the end of your days, you've got nothing, you've got no friends with you, you end up in a jail and they're going to cut your head off. That's okay. I want you to see that your life is acceptable if you live in that way. So I want you here with me to live your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Which brings us now to point number two, to die is gain. Allow me to tell you a story about another man named Paul. This man is a modern person, uh, somebody who was born, I think, in 1973 in Westchester County, New York. Uh, Paul Kalanithi is his name. He was an up-and-coming neurosurgeon. He had degrees from Stanford and Yale and Cambridge, and he was considered one of the brightest and most skilled brain surgeons in the world. He was definitely considered by most of his peers to be one of the people with the brightest future in the medical field. Then in May of 2013, Paul was diagnosed with metastatic stage four non-small cell EGFR positive lung cancer. I don't even know what most of those things in that phrase even mean. But what I do know is that less than two years later, Paul Kalanithi was dead. But before he died, he wrote a book about the process of dying, which he entitled When Breath Becomes Air. It was an interesting book I read a couple years ago. And it was interesting because he wrote as a doctor who had seen many, many cases of cancer. Now he is writing as the patient. And he knew what to expect. He knew exactly how this was going to destroy him. However, when he transitioned from one side of the table to the other, everything took on new meaning for him. In his book, he writes these words. He says, I began to realize that coming in such 
uh, I began to realize that coming in such close contact with my own mortality had changed both nothing and everything. Before my cancer was diagnosed, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. After the diagnosis, I knew that someday I would die, but I didn't know when. But now I knew it acutely. The problem wasn't really a scientific one. The fact of death is unsettling, yet there is no other way to live. The fact of death is unsettling, and for a Christian, that is a good thing. The unfortunate reality is that most of us in this room will not prioritize our lives properly until we know that we are close to death. Psalm chapter 90 verse 12 teaches us that we should pray this way. Teach us, O Lord, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Scripture teaches us that our life is like a, it's like a breath. It's like a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It's like the grass that grows up and then withers and dies. That's what your life is like. Life is slipping away at a furious pace. Do you realize that many of the students graduating high school this year were not born when September 11th attacks took place in 2001? That should be amazing to those of us who were growing up or adults when that took place. That seems like just recently that that happened, does it not? It feels like, I've got a seven-year-old son, it feels like just yesterday I was holding him in my arms for the first time, and he's seven. He's doing math that I don't understand already. Life is going fast, and death is coming sooner than you think. It is very possible that there are people sitting in the chairs today that will not make it to next Christmas. May the Lord teach us to number our days. We are called to live in the light of eternity. The reality of death brings a stunning clarity to the things that matter in life. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to examine the way that Paul viewed death and how that affected his life. Paul spoke about the likelihood of his own death at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, quote, For we know that if... The tent, that is our bodies, that is our earthly home, is destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Here he's saying, look, you can kill my body, that's fine. God's going to give me a better one. He continues in verses 6 through 9. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. He's literally saying, I value this life much less then I value that one. It would be better for me to die here and live there. Paul recognizes that he was not built just for this life. God made us for eternity. And the little bit of time that we have here is filled with suffering. The Bible says that man's days are few and few and full of trouble. Yes, they are. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis reminds us of this truth when he says, quote, There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. 
But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Everyone in this building and every human being that has ever lived will go on in existence forever. You will be in one of two places forever, whether that be with Christ in heaven or away from him in hell. Every single person is going to last forever. Now, returning our minds to 2 Timothy, I want you to take special notice of something. Paul could have walked away from this death he's talking about. All he had to do was utter the simple words, Caesar is Lord. And if he would have said that, he would have been set free. All he had to do was verbally recant his faith in Christ, and he would have been a free man. Unlike cancer, this death was avoidable from a human perspective. But Paul was not interested in human freedom. He was desirous to finish the race well. Any worry of fear or any worry or fear of death that he felt, all of that, I, I think he felt it. I think that he would have experienced those fears, just like I think we would have. But all of that was overpowered by his unwavering faith in the Savior. He explains this fearlessness in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, which, by the way, is becoming one of my all-time favorite passages. He says, quote, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Do you see the paradox here? Everything on the outside is just getting destroyed. But on the inside, I'm being renewed. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, or in other words, temporal, not lasting. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What kind of of eternal unseen things is Paul talking about here? What kind of reward is he suggesting? Well, there's a lot that we could talk about. I'm only going to focus on one because there's only one mentioned in our text this morning. It is this, verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me, literally it is protected for me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul is excited about the reality that when the emperor of Rome declares Paul guilty, the righteous ruler of the universe would welcome him home, standing in the righteousness of Christ. Moments after Caesar demanded that Paul's physical head be severed from his shoulders, the king of heaven would adorn his glorified head with a crown of righteousness. So what is this crown? It's not here talking about the righteousness that we receive at salvation. If you're in Christ, you already have the covering of his righteousness. It has been an imperfect trade where he has taken all of your sin and you have received all of his righteousness. This crown that he's talking about isn't the same as that. Also, I think you know this, but I'll just say it. This crown is not a literal crown that is going to be physically placed on the head. It is a metaphorical way for Paul to say that he would never again have any stain of sin in his life. He would no longer crave any ungodliness. Temptation would never entice him again. One of the greatest blessings of heaven is that we are going to live forever and ever and ever without sin. That is the crown of righteousness. If you are in Christ, there will be a day when you will look back and you will say, it has been over a hundred million years 
since I have sinned. It has been over a hundred million years since I have even desired to sin. And there will be no taste for it. And it was this kind of righteousness that Paul was so hungry to experience. The goal of our life must be to magnify and to honor Christ. So I'm going to summarize, summarize everything I've said so far by quoting Paul's words from Philippians chapter two, uh, 1, verses 20 through 24. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. That is our goal that Christ would be honored in our bodies. How? Whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why Christ is honored whether we live or die. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. What is fruitful labor? That means righteous ministry. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart And be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you think this way? That being home with Christ is better than life? He continues, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Notice that remaining here on this earth is only honoring to Christ if it is purposeful by filling it with fruitful ministry for the sake of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that today as we have seen how Paul finished out his race well, that he fought the good fight, that we would be encouraged that before him Christ fought the battle on our behalf, that Jesus conquered so that we could be called more than conquerors. Lord, I pray that today as we come to this text, we would not just try harder, but that we would come before you pleading with you to help us. Lord, we cannot grow without you. I pray that you would cause us to grow in the fruit of the Spirit because it is the Spirit's fruit and that we would walk in the Spirit and thereby growing these fruit in our lives. I pray that we would be conformed into the image of Christ because of the power of Christ that is in us, not relying in our own strength. Lord, I ask that we would live well for Christ and that we would die well for Christ and that when our days have ended that we would receive that crown of life that crown of righteousness that we are promised. And Lord, finally, I I do want to pray for this pastor and his church in China, for Pastor Wing Yi. Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be free. But even if they are not freed by the government, I, I pray, Lord, that many in China and beyond would hear what is taking place and would believe. Lord, as has already been taking place in China, there has been an incredible growth of the gospel. I plead with you, Lord, that you would cause their numbers to inflate so much that there would become a time when even their government would fold, but the kingdom of the, of the Lord would stand. Lord, I pray for this pastor that he would continue to be firm, that he would not waver, that he would know the prayers of the world are behind him, that we would be able to pray for him consistently. And God, I pray that just as Paul says in this next passage we're about to look at next week, that he will know that even when the world deserts him, that the Lord stood by him, strengthening him. Father, we pray these things for the church there and the church that is persecuted around the world. And I pray this for our church here at Redeeming Grace, that you would please fill us with strength to live every day in light of eternity. And for the sake of Christ, 
in whose name we pray. Amen.